I used to hear a voice and uh, it used to tell me that it was a journalist um, and used to tell me the news. Whether you want to call that an imaginary friend, whether you want to call it a jinn, whether you, well, I don't know what you want to call it. Um, but that's what I remember, you know, and, and it used to tell me the news and it used to tell me it was a journalist. I used to tell my parents like, oh, there's, there's a journalist that speaks with me. And it was like, what? That's, that's, that's really weird. And from that age, I was like, I want to become a journalist. Welcome to another episode of the I Love Monday podcast. Today we have the founder of the Muslim Influence Network, Omar Dakosta Shahid. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Actually, now I'm intrigued about your name. You know, what? It, it does, it does uh, intrigue people. Um, so I'm mixed race. I may not look that mixed race, I probably look more Pakistani, uh, but I'm, I'm mixed race. My, my mother is, um, my, on my mother's side is Jamaican, Chinese, Portuguese, Indian. Wow. Uh, my father's side is Pakistani. Um, although they, they moved to Kenya, as many Indians, Pakistanis did okay. back in like the 50s and, 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 and 60s. So my, all my family on my mom's side are all Dacostas. Um, my mom is Dacosta, um, and Dacosta is a Portuguese name, although if I'm going to complicate it a bit more, apparently that, uh, the, the Portuguese Dacostas originally came from Syria. Oh, wow. Um, so there's a lot of mix in, in that side of my family. My, my, my mom's mom's um, father was a Sikh who wore turban. From? From India. From India. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then her mother was Chinese. And then from my, my granddad's side, it's Jamaican Portuguese. Okay. So... I grew up um, eating like a lot of plantain, ackee and salt fish, uh, like uh, rice and peas, chicken, because there was that Jamaican side yeah. that I kind of was, had, had in, my, in my heritage. Um, but uh, yeah, so all my family on my mom's side are all not Muslim. Oh, okay. Uh, and my mother converted to Islam when she married my late father. Um, so it's a very interesting mix and I'm grateful for it because you get to, your, your horizons broaden when you are around diverse people, yeah. you know, so um, yeah, it's a really interesting family mix that I have. So how was your childhood and growing up? Because would it, I'm assuming it would be slightly different because you're surrounded by different nationalities. Whereas for example, I was just surrounded by Indians um, and the community was South Asian. How was it growing up? Yeah, so um, I, was, I was kind of raised by a few different people in some sense. So mostly by my parents. But for a large portion of my childhood, I spent with my grandmother from my mum's side, who was a church-going Christian um, and um, also largely brought up with one of my aunties from my dad's side, who's Pakistani. Um, but the area in which I lived was a very white area. Uh, Woodford Green. Okay. Uh, so that's where I grew up for like the first uh, 15 years of my life, maybe more than that. Um, so most of my friends were, were white and, and so on. Um, so yeah, I grew up with all that diversity in a white area. I was probably the only Muslim in my primary school. Um, in secondary school, it was like the complete opposite. So I, I moved to a secondary school in Ilford. Uh, a private school, 
which was all Asian. Cranbrook College. Cranbrook College, yeah. Which is closed down now. Yeah. Um, there was like one white kid in the school and it was like the opposite. Um, lots of Muslims. Well, it was a very small school. Um, so that, that was interesting to, to, to have that shift. Um, so, so yeah. Okay. So how, you know, that shift, did it change you in any way? Because obviously you've got 11 or six, seven years of primary school in one complete different environment and then secondary school in a different environment. Did that have a different, any kind of impact on you? Um, I think it all contributed to the person I am today. And I, I like to think I'm relatively open-minded and um, I can kind of, you know, uh, I'm comfortable with many different types of people. Um, so, yeah, I think going from a white area to a, an Asian area, um, I think allowed me to recognize that life is, is multicultural and there's lots of different color, uh, metaphorically and obviously, um, you know, with, with people's ethnicities and, and, and backgrounds. Um, and it, it just gave me a good appreciation of, of the world, you know. And then combined with that, my parents, I traveled a lot with them. So in, in one year, for example, I think in 20, 2009, um, I went to five, on, went on five different holidays in one year with my parents, you know, like around the world. So there was that traveling aspect as well, which contributed towards that. What kind of countries were you going to? So like Malaysia, Turkey, you know, European countries, um, Egypt, uh, Egypt, various different. So you're, seeing yeah. that you're just being exposed to different cultures. Yeah, exactly. Was there any one culture that was pushed on you? So this is really interesting. So if you were to ask me, what do I feel? Like what ethnicity do I feel? I don't feel like any one ethnicity. Like I don't feel Pakistani. I don't feel any of the other ethnicities that are in me. Um, so my, because my mother is, is like a you know, Western convert, um, and my father was from Pakistani heritage. I didn't grow up in an Urdu-speaking household, so therefore I didn't pick it up. So I was speaking English. Um, so so I, I wasn't. I didn't grow up with a strong sense of a particular culture. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I didn't really feel like anything growing up, anything particular. But I could relate to different cultures, but I didn't feel like one. That makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. And it, to, even till today, I still kind of don't feel like at home with any particular culture. So going on to your university, you studied journalism. Why? So if you want the honest answer, it sound, might sound a bit crazy. Um, when I was about seven, I used to hear a voice and uh, used to tell me that it was a journalist um, and used to tell me the news whether you want to call that an imaginary friend or whether you want to call it a jinn whether you, well, I don't know what you want to call it um, but that's what I remember you know and and it used to tell me the news and it used to tell me it was a, and I used to tell my parents like oh there's there's a journalist that speaks with me and it was like what that's 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 really weird and from that age I was like I want to become a journalist like from a, most people when they're like in sixth form in college, they still don't know what they want to do at university. They kind yeah. of like just make something up. Um, but I was very sure from the age of seven that I wanted to become a journalist and I did. Uh, I studied journalism at City University, which apparently is the best university in Europe for journalism. Um, while I was at university, I started writing for big publications like The Guardian, Times, Independent, New Statesman, 
and, and so on. I interviewed lots of famous people and, and so on. And then I pursued journalism for a little while after university. And then, as I said, I had an early retirement from journalism. I, I gave it up for a few reasons. So this crazy story about the imaginary voice, yeah. what kind of news did it tell you? I can't remember too much. I'm, I, I, I think I do remember telling me something about when Princess Diana passed away or something like that. I mean, I was, I was like six or seven, so I can't remember what it used to speak to me about. Yeah. Who knows what that was? How long did that last for? Probably like, I don't know, a year. Okay. A year. And then since yeah. then, you've just been fixated on like, the news, journalism? Not so much anymore. Yeah. Um, so I, I, was, I was like, um, for like the, in my late teens and, and so on, I was reading like The Economist and The New Statesman. And, and I had to read that um, when I was at university. I, they encourage us to read a newspaper every day It's um, part of like our learning and, and so on. So, yeah, I did have that side, but it's kind of left me. And what, what I think it was, it was all leading to was I, I wanted to pursue journalism because I felt like it was an honorable thing to do that you can uncover stories, you can, you know, cover marginalized communities, you know, you can talk about important issues, you know, and, you know, and so on. And when I felt like I couldn't do that anymore, and when I felt like my, you know, the, the things which I wanted to talk about were being blocked and um, in favor of like sensationalism and, you know, clickbait and all that kind of stuff. When I used to present like interesting stories about Muslims, positive stories, they weren't always of interest to these publications. But if it was a negative story, if they would hear about a negative story, they'll be fast to, to jump on it. So I was like, don't really want to be part of this uh, industry. Um, so I, I left the industry and I was like, how can I channel that desire to want to do something positive in the world somewhere else? And that's when I fell in, kind of fell into uh, marketing. So then stories that weren't really getting published, the ones you said, the positive ones, is that mainly about Muslims or is that just generally the positive ones weren't getting published? It was mostly about Muslims. Um, so I'd, I'd pitch positive stories about Muslims, like this particular Muslim has done this amazing thing. Look what the community's come together and, and done this. Yeah. And it wasn't always of interest. Most of the time it wasn't. Did um, you get any reasons why? Um, not particularly, no. I did have, um, that was just one thing among many while I left yeah. journalism. Like I had like some publications, like I would present an idea to them, it's called pitching, and they would take the story and publish it. Yeah. And um, I remember one time a, a journalist did that and uh, I complained to the editor and the editor apologized and said, sorry, you know, that's really bad what we did. Um, so there was multiple things and, and I just felt like the industry, the, how the industry was at the time and still is, it wasn't conducive to what I wanted to contribute to. So I thought it was better just, just for me to leave, you know. So what is it that you wanted to contribute to? Is it that positive news and... Yeah, broad, broadly it's um, having a positive impact in the world, but particularly showcasing um, uh, how, Muslims, um, how Muslims contribute to the world and how our faith is a positive impact in the world. Um, so that was a large part of what I wanted to do in, do in journalism. And then I thought, how can I do that somewhere else? So I went into marketing. I was uh, working for a, a Muslim-led charity. Um, and then that's where I met my business partner. And he came from a background in uh, influencer marketing. And at that time, around like from, 20, from 2013, 2014 up until 2017, I started to manage Muslim influencers. 
So I was managing influence, Muslim influences in sports, comedy, music. I managed a Indian photographer, like lots of different, just I fell into it just by chance. Um, so with my background in influence management um, at the time and with my business partner's background in influencer marketing, we thought, how do we come together to create the world's first Muslim influence agency, uh, which we conceived of in 2016 and then actually launched it in 2017. Um, so that's really been what I've been focusing on the last six years. What were your steps in launching the agency? Because it's a completely niche market you've gone into. So you either, although you can get ideas from other businesses, it's um, you can't. It's, there's no copy and paste. Like yeah. for example, with the business we're in, iCast was said you can copy and paste off yeah. another other agencies. Your one, you can't do that. No, that's the thing. There was no blueprint for us to follow. So there wasn't even, there were influencer marketing agencies, but there wasn't any agency in the world at the time that focused on Muslim influencers. So we had a lot of struggle because there wasn't anyone we could get advice from who could say, oh, this is how you do it. You know, there weren't even Muslim influencers that we could say that, that could tell us, oh, we've worked with this agency before, whatever it was like, completely starting from scratch. You know, um, but we got a lot of support. We got a lot of support. There was a lot of positive sentiment. People understood what we were trying to do, uh, which was empower Muslim influencers. Our original strapline was empowering the influencers of today to better the society of tomorrow. And we wanted to do that with Muslim influencers. So we recognize that the online and the social media world is just crazy. There's, you know, there's no framework in which, in which Muslims know how to operate. You know, they're, they're, um, it's all quite narcissistic yeah. and we're like how do we channel that energy that they have to promoting po to creating positive content so um that's what we wanted to do uh, and that's why we did things like we arranged influencer meetups so our first one in you know summer 2017 we had influencers fly in from across the world to meet each other and then they inspired because we had muslim scholars speak to them you know um, so we had a second one in like in Toronto in Canada with Canadian Muslim influencers. We had Omar Suleiman, if you're familiar with him, uh, Sheikh Omar yeah. Suleiman, give a talk to them. So there was always this underlying effort from us to want to inspire Muslim influencers to use their content, to use their content and their platform for good. Right. Um, that was obviously the, the kind of social impact element of, of our business. The, the business function is creating marketing campaigns with our Muslim influencers to help brands target the Muslim economy. So. What kind of feedback did you have from the initial Muslim influencers that you approached? Um, so it was interesting because on the one hand, some of them were like, would prefer to be managed by a mainstream agency rather than a Muslim influencer agency. Um, some of them were like, this is really good, like our own space you know for muslim influencers um so there, there was kind of it was mixed in that sense everyone was supportive of, of what we were doing um and uh so yeah i think um the muslim influencers liked what we we're doing and and we had a lot of them wanting to join us uh, at the time um so yeah at, at the beginning it was like very exciting but then you know you kind of have lots of business problems as every business does that, that, that we, that we can, had to confront. What kind of problems were you facing at the beginning? So one of them purely from a business perspective was the fact that brands only really wanted to work with us in Ramadan. 
because they saw Ramadan as like the key season in which to target Muslims. So we, the first like few, three to four years of business, it was a real struggle because it's like, we would make a lot of money in Ramadan. And then outside of Ramadan, okay, there were some Muslim businesses that would work with us, but mainstream businesses that would pay us the large amounts of money, they weren't interested. And they didn't, they were like, it's almost like Muslims only exist in Ramadan, you know? So um, we had that, we had that issue. Um, and then also influencers generally can be uh, sometimes difficult to work with. They can be flaky, um, you know, and because Mus Muslim influence is seen as a lot more smaller and niche compared to the broader Muslims, sorry, the broader influencer scene, the quality of Muslim influencers or the, the, the amount of quality Muslim influencers is very limited. So the ones who are very creative and very professional you're talking about like 1% of, of the Muslim influencers that exist. So finding the right Muslim influencers, A, to work with, B, to manage, and C, once we believe there's a long-term vision with, it was like very, very limited. So um, there was the business aspect, which we were struggling with. And then there was also the fact that Muslim influencers, most of them, you know, weren't necessarily great to work with. So the business aspect where you were finding it difficult to get brands outside of Ramadan. How did you overcome that? Um, so to some extent, we didn't overcome it. Um, we, had to, we had to double down on finding Muslim brands uh, outside of Ramadan. But we had serious cash flow issues like outside of Ramadan. So that's something that um, was a real struggle for the first few years. Then what started to happen was there was this recognition by mainstream brands that, you know what, the Muslim market is, is really big, it's important. And, um, you know, it makes sense to, to work with them, you know, in Ramadan and beyond Ramadan. So we started to, for example, then we started to do like Eid al-Adha campaigns, you know, we worked with like Beta Coco and, and, okay. and like the UN and, and various others. Um, so it's only really like in the last two to three years that there's been a, a real great appreciation of the Muslim market by mainstream brands and, and so on. And, and even like you see in, in a lot of big companies now, like you see the CEOs, they fast themselves for one yeah. or two days in Ramadan. So the appreciation developed over time to some extent. And one of the most important things in business is timing. I almost think we launched a little bit too early. You know, if you look at, you know, for example, YouTube, YouTube launched at the perfect time when there was enough digital penetration and broadband speeds and, and so on. There were other YouTubes before that, but they all failed. Um, and luckily, you know, um, you know, we did launch a bit early, but the recognition did come off the Muslim market a few years, a few years down the line. And the part where you say that influencers are a bit more difficult to work with, but there's only a handful of really good influencers. Why do you think that is? Is there like a specific reason or? So. The first thing is um, you don't train to become an influencer. Yeah. It's almost, to be a bit crude, some, some, some people just wake up one day like, I want to become an influencer. You know, if I wanted to, I could have become an influencer, like in, on Instagram and TikTok, like I had the contacts, you know, I've got the I've got a marketing agent to support it, but I decided not to because I don't, I don't necessarily want fame. And I don't think fame is a good thing. And this is a side point. Like I, 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 I um, I think people should be really careful about fame. And today, like one of the most 
common jobs that young people want, professions, is to become an influencer. Like in, in, a, in most of the Western world, becoming an influencer among like Gen Z and the generation below that is like the number one thing they want to do. And people don't actually realize the consequences of fame and, and the responsibility that influence has. And also the, the backlash that you're going to get, you know, the hate, the trolling and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So my advice to anybody is don't become an influencer, which might sound counterintuitive, the fact that I've got an influence agency. But my belief is that unless, if you've got a particular skill or you've got a particular, um, uh, you know, something you want to say which is important, say it, you know, show the world your skills and your talent, but don't seek fame. There's a, there's a fine line, you know, between the two. So if you, if you think to yourself, I want to become famous, you'll probably be destroyed by that fame. And I've seen it over and over again. I've worked with influencers, managed them who have, become globally famous and I've seen what's happened to them psychologically, spiritually, the challenges and the tests that they face. And I wouldn't want, I wouldn't wish that for anybody, you know, and people don't realize what they're getting into when they're becoming influencers. That, that's a massive side tangent to the question that you asked, which is why aren't there that many Muslim, talented Muslims? Today there are a lot more, um, but like I said, you, you, there's, there's no training and a lot of the influencers that emerge don't necessarily come from corporate professions or have corporate jobs and therefore they're things like their communication you know um, understanding briefs and, and timelines and deadlines and you know um, the the quality that's needed by brands that appreciation isn't always there um, so we notice that for example if influencers has a corporate job or had a corporate job their level the quality of their work and their content is often a lot higher you know so those are some of the reasons so you know when for example influencer comes to you, you do you build out a strategy for them so when you build out a strategy because the influencer market has only been around for a very short amount of time so how do you future proof them so how do you for example a 20 year old comes to you obviously they're not going to do the same things when they're 30 or 35 but how, how do you future proof them because i'm guessing that's yeah. a big part of it as well yeah, so we, we have this, um, this plan with influencers, uh, uh, love, life, learn and legacy. And it's quite a holistic um, strategy that we create for them. So love being, how do we look after their, 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 their mental well-being? You know, how do we make sure that they're okay, you know, beyond just being an influencer in their, in their home life, you know, their relationships and so on? Um, then, then it's life. You know, how do we make sure that um, they are um, uh, progressing where they, they want to go and that they have an understanding of, of what they want to achieve? Um, and that um, fundamentally, how do we make sure that they're earning enough money? Because often with influencers, there's this, there's this cognitive dissonance where they're famous, but they have no money. And it really troubles them because they're like, um, everyone knows who I am but I don't even have enough money for petrol. And we notice that over and over again. So it's their finances are really important. Um, then it's learning, you know, how do they go on that journey of being lifelong learners of not just their craft, but just as a human being. So how do we equip them with, with the knowledge that they need? And then finally, it's, it's legacy. Legacy is um, in 20, 30 years time, 
how do you leave something behind that's meaningful? Whether it's a digital asset like their like the social media pages or whether it's helping them create a, an organization, a business, a charity. So we might, for example, go into business with them and um, you know, we, sh we split the equity and we create the foundations for their business and they, they're spearheading it, they're leading it. Um, so love, life, learn, and legacy is generally the strategy that we uh, create for them uh, in order for them to have a holistic idea of, of where they need to go and what they need to do. So you actually help them create something for the future financially, which is probably something they don't necessarily have the expertise to do. Yeah. So it's something that we haven't done much of, but for the next stage of what we want to do, it's, it's largely about transitioning to becoming business partners uh, with these influencers um, to create products and brands which um, are A, going to be uh, high revenue for them and B, are going to create social impact. So if we combine these two things, we think it's a good formula because you have the, the, the mechanics of creating a, uh, a functioning business um, and then you also get to do something positive in the world. So through these brands and through these products, we want, we want influencers to make a meaningful contribution to the world and, and tackle important issues. So you're now six years into your journey. What kind of challenges have you faced? Your more recent challenges that even though you might have been performing well, but from away from the finance side, what kind of business challenges have you faced? Too many. Uh, so in l this time last year, we had like a, a team of between 20 to 26 staff. Um, and today uh, we've got uh, one full-time team member and then uh, freelancers and contractors that we work with closely. So that was a massive um, and traumatic period the past the past year um, going from you know a small to medium size you know team to really cutting down um, but there were so many learnings in it why, why did you have to cut down um, fundamentally the business wasn't doing well enough okay. um, we we had a whole host of issues so um, as we were trying to scale, we didn't necessarily have the processes in place to facilitate that. So we were, we were growing, you know, revenue was growing and so on, but then cracks started to emerge uh, in our business. Um, and that just opened the floodgates to a lot of different problems which you weren't um, foreseeing. And, um, you know, uh, uh, and then we had uh, financial issues as well with clients leaving us and clients went out of money. We were, we were working with a lot of startups at the time and startups have a, there's an instability about them obviously, often because of um, they don't have uh, the, they don't have the cash, they don't have investment and, and so on. Um, so a lot of the startups we're working with ran out of money um, and that meant that they couldn't work with us anymore. So that was a learning for us is we actually thought it was a good strategy to work with exciting growing startups, but we learned the hard way that that should only form a certain percentage of your clients. Mm. The majority should be big, stable brands who have 
you know, uh, the, the cash flow and, and, and so on. So there were, there were lots, of, lots of issues that we were facing at the time. It's about diversifying your portfolio, essentially, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's really important. Yeah. How did it make you feel that you had to let go of 90 plus percent of your team? Because that would have had a massive impact on you. Yeah, it was. Um, so I have a therapist, and um, I, I, I told my therapist about this. And when he listened to it, he said I would put it in the trauma category, like how difficult that was. Um, so it was it was very difficult, and um, you know, I think uh, like mentally, physically, physiologically, it had a, had a toll. Like I was feeling at the time, I was feeling like. Um, drained, I was feeling like lethargic, um, and all of that would have been due to elements of stress, you know, and it's, you all know as a business owner, letting someone go is, is the worst thing, you, you hate to do it, but you have to do it, you know, sometimes. So um, some, of the, some of our team members, um, uh, we, we let a lot of them go, and some of them were like, my friends have gone, you know, I don't want to stick around anymore, uh, and so on, so it was, uh, you know, Mentally and physically, it had a toll, um, but it's actually a blessing. Right now, we've started to do a lot more strategy work, uh, research work. So we recently completed a large exercise for a publicly listed company doing qualitative, quantitative research, you know, product development, um, product research, and, and so on, um, to help them understand the Muslim market uh, and so on. So um, a lot of our work is veering more towards that rather than kind of campaign-based marketing, uh, which can require a few more people uh, to, to really do it well. So we're, we're not dependent so much on having a large team anymore uh, because a lot of it is, um, you know, kind of sp specialist skill that's needed either by myself or my business partner, Safe, or, um, you know, Hadi who works for us or like the consultants, very experienced consultants that we have um, around us. So um, it's gone from that very tough time to doing a lot more um, interesting work, but work which where there's like, you, it's not all due in a week. It's like, these are six month projects. Yeah. So <laughs> we could, we could, um, we can kind of pace ourselves, you know? Uh, so in many ways it's, 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 it's worked out, um, it's worked out nicely for myself and safe in the sense that um, we're not as stressed you know, having a large team is quite difficult. You know, yeah. there's the, the people management and the politics and, you know, the, the problems of, of people, you know, people problems and all that kind of stuff. We don't have to deal with it anymore. Um, so right now we're, we're quite content with where we are. You're talking before about scaling up and you didn't have the proper uh, processes and systems to scale up. So if you are now planning to scale up again, how, what, how would you do it and what would you do differently? Yeah. Okay, so... Um, Number one is, um, uh, number one is you want to get the right people on the bus. Um, you you want like any business, if it's a specialist you know business, you want to make sure that you have specialists and people with with experience. So early days of the business, we were hiring people who we felt were good enough, rather than a world class talent. And that's something that we only later on in the business we started to hire kind of world class talent. So you need the right people. In order to have the right people, you need the money. Uh, in order to have the money, you need to have a very good product, which you can sell, a product or service. 
in order to sell very good product or service, you need a good sales team. Generally startups, the sales team are the founders who are generally the best salespeople. So you as founders need to know that you can sell, which is, is not an issue, hasn't been an issue for us. So there's a team, there's a product, there's a selling of that, and then there's the, the training. It would be the final component, I would say. So training means that everybody not just needs to know how to do their job, but everyone in the business should know how to do other people's job. So for example, um, if, if you are away from the business, you know that there's someone who can cover you. You know, I'm not talking about like, you know, a, a salesperson to a marketing person's job, but, but the, the broad um, things that people need to do in a business, like, like with systems and, and so on, everyone needs to know how to do them. Um, and they need to be, everyone needs to be trained on that. So you need to, um, you need to train people on it. It needs to be documented and there should be a video. So you need to create those, those systems which, which scale and can be replicated and, and repeatable. Um, so that's something that, especially, you know, systems and processes is something that me and my business partner have known about for years. Like he's, he's been very like well-trained on, on systems and processes, but we were too slow to implement them. Um, uh, so that's something that I'd really advise businesses is figure out what you need to do and how to get there and then what systems and processes need to be in place in order to protect your business. And to be honest, that also future-proofs your business and then when you want to sell it, you've got your whole systems and processes. You can tell it's a well-run company that way. Yeah, absolutely. When you were building out your systems and processes, you did that after you let go of your team or before? So it's not, it's not like we didn't have, we didn't have system processes. We, we did, we had lots, but we didn't have enough so as the, the, the processes needed in line with the scale, they weren't catching up. So there were, there were new positions that we were hiring for. For example, like we had someone like head of HR, for example. We never had someone in HR before. We had someone who was operations, HR, and legal all kind of in one. So the, the fact that there was a new HR department, yeah. there weren't the systems and processes in place to, to, to properly accommodate. To accommodate that so as we we're growing as there were new departments and then so on the process that we had weren't matching the new areas in which we we're hiring for and um the, it, it, it would it was taking too long to catch up with that so um uh yeah the the in, in short the processes weren't happening quickly enough in in line with how we were growing okay and when you finally built out all your system and processes, because now it seems like you have a quite a, a detailed and thorough process manual, essentially. How did that impact your business? Uh, means that all our clients are happy with us at the moment. So um, one of the things about having an, an agency or service-based business is that you need to set expectations. Um, and... Um, Part of the way you set expectations is, is letting clients know that this is what we're going to do, this is how we're going to do it, these are the results you can expect, and, and so on. And now that we have you know, a lot of that in place, it means that A, you can manage expectations, and B, you can deliver on them. Um, so in, in short, you know, having the right processes in place ensure that you can actually deliver properly for your clients. So. And have you actually noticed that 
difference in client satisfaction from before to now in terms of are there less complaints or more reviews? Yeah, um, there, there is that, there is that. Um, but we are only taking on limited amount of clients at the moment. Naturally, we're, our, we're a lean team. Um, so um, uh, one of the difficulties is when we had a larger team, we had like dozens of clients at one point. And all, as an organization, being able to manage you know, lots of clients is um, structurally difficult. You know, to, to, you know, so we're quite happy having larger clients you know, paying us like six figures and stuff like that, but doubling down on them and, and, and giving everything to them, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's that's a model that, that we're pursuing at the moment, um, which which is working. But does that also mean you've tried to go for different type of clients? Because before, if you're focusing on campaigns, whereas now a strategy, would that mean it's a complete different kind of client? Not necessarily, not necessarily. So... The, the strategy for a lot of the brands precedes the, the campaign. So we might work on a strategy for six months for a client, build out everything they need to know and everything they need to do. And they'll be like, okay, now we've got the strategy, we need implementation. So we can then lean on, which is, our, you know, which is what we were doing before, which is the campaign side. So um, the strategy often has to be implemented and often they come to us to do that. What's your... Like, five-year plan now because you've had it seems like you've had a really good start then you've had to slow down a bit and then you've changed a few bits and now what's your next step that you're planning to go to the, the goal now is to double down working on a select working with a select few visionary Muslim influencers who want to create highly profitable businesses that scale and also with those businesses create significant social impact um, so that's only been a very small part of what we've been doing previously um, we've been focusing on you know like delivering for clients yeah now it's like we're shifting our model slightly to everything is becoming inward you know we're, we're working with influencers to create the brands rather than us finding brands that we want to work with we want to create them with the influencers um, to create profitable businesses with them. When you say social impact, what kind of, what do you mean by the social impact? So what kind of impact and where do you want to see this going? So we want the impact, so we're working with, we'll be working with Muslim influencers, yeah. first of all. Many of those Muslim influencers will want to have an impact on other Muslims. So there are so many problems that Muslims are facing uh, today you know, whether it's regarding, you know, technology or social media or, um, you know, general problems that affect everybody will also affect Muslims, but Muslims have specific problems as well. Um, and we want to work with these influencers to tackle a lot of these issues that, you know, the, the Ummah is, is facing. But also we want to work with Muslim influencers who have a broader horizon that can see global issues that affect, you know, everybody, you know, whether it's climate change, you know, whether it's obesity, whether it's the food that we're eating, pollution, and so on, and create businesses around those to tackle those particular issues. So if there was one social issue that you'd be able to solve, or you'd want to solve, what would it be and why? Okay, I, me personally? Yeah, you personally. Yeah. So I'm, um, 
I'm really passionate about the idea of people becoming um, stronger uh, physically, mentally, spiritually. And I think that's at the heart of how we change society at the, at the individual level. If, if we as individuals um, become stronger and more knowledgeable and uh, just generally more robust uh, human beings, we can all individually have an influence on society. So um, I just wish we, we knew more as a start. Like, for example, I was really happy that you gave me this glass bottle of water. I've, you know, I haven't told anyone, I haven't even told my wife this, by the way. I, I gave up drinking uh, plastic, like water with plastic bottles a while ago because it's not good for the environment and it's not good for you. People have no idea how much plastic we consume in our lifetimes. And I know that might sound like a really small micro example, but the proliferation of like plastic in our bodies has an impact on our mind, has an impact on like men's testosterone and sperm count. Um, there's, there's, it has so many impact and we don't realize that at the micro level, all these small things that we do have an impact on us and everything that we do have an impact on, on society. So if we can become better people, stronger people, more knowledgeable people, more research people, it will have a wider impact on society. So I, I believe in the, the individual is really important. So I would want, you know, the, the businesses that we create to help individual people um, on that journey to, to creating a better world. So how, how would you implement a strategy that would create a better world to make people more robust? Because obviously there's raising awareness, that's like the first thing, but then after that? So um, it starts with um, knowledge. People don't understand the world that we live in today. And, you know, as a Muslim, one of the things that we're taught is that you have to understand the society in which you live. Because if you don't understand it, you won't know how to operate within it and you won't know how to tackle the problems within it. So... <clears throat> If, if, if everybody, Muslim or, or non-Muslim, can understand um, the, the consequences of the systems in which we've inherited, you know, kind of turbo-capitalism, neoliberalism, you know, um, uh, you know a, a very um, dominant secular world in which, which we've inherited, we can't tackle those things if we don't understand them. And we don't understand what they're leading to. So they're, they're leading to, to give you a small example again, all this uh, plastic which is polluting the environment is leading to us not thinking about the types of food that we eat. It's leading to not realizing the importance of, um, you know, spirituality, you know, and, and prayer. You know, it's leading to um, us polluting the world. You know, it's, it's leading to the, the debt-based river system which we've inherited, which make, means that, you know, we end up chopping down all the trees and taking all the fish out of the sea and, and doing all that kind of stuff in order to, because countries are in debt to other countries. And I know I'm gone, I've gone macro again, but all of that starts at the, the, at the individual level about us having knowledge of the world that we live in. You know, we live in a, we live in a society of, of bondage and slavery because of the debt-based society in which we live, which, which then creates the, the, all the problems that, that we have today. So that's why I'm very proud and passionate about my faith because it warns us about these systems um, and how and, and the solution that you know Muslims have, the alternative that Muslims have. And we need to know that as Muslims that there is an alternative. There is an alternative to the systems that we've inherited and it's through our faith. 
So knowledge of the world and knowledge of our faith combined together means that we can tackle the things that, that exist. Do you think the lack of knowledge is a reason why Muslims have struggled to raise awareness about things like food, which is really important, um, environment, again, which is really important to our faith? Do you think it's a lack of knowledge that has made us not look after the environment on a macro level? It's, it is a lack of knowledge, and, and knowledge is, is at the heart of our faith. Um, in, in some sense, you could very easily argue that the pursuit of knowledge is potentially more important than an individual by himself worshipping, like, you know, um, all, for example, all like extra prayers that you're doing. I'm not talking about the daily obligatory prayers, but all the extra prayers, all the extra fasting, that actually is not important as important as the pursuit of knowledge because knowledge is the thing which allows you to understand the world and contribute meaningfully and help people you can you can help yourself by praying and fasting which is great that's 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 good for you and 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 you become a better person you can help other people but if you don't have knowledge then you are at the mercy of what other people are telling you and that's a, one of the biggest problems that we have today is that we're not thinking we go about our daily lives, we go to work, we come home, we have some food, we go to sleep, and we have no idea about um, how we're being influenced. So we're going back to the idea of like influences, um, if, if you're either, um, if you are an influencer, A, I think you have a responsibility to influence in the right way, but all of us have to recognize that there are mechanisms in place, subconscious, in the news, politics, all of these things are constantly influencing us. And we have to be aware of what's influencing us and the things which are influencing us. Um, so it's, it's, it, you can only have that through knowledge, knowledge of the present day and knowledge of our faith in order to understand how to tackle the issues of, of the present day. I think when a person puts faith and knowledge together, automatically we think about, okay, our prayers, our fasting, our charity, we think about the specific worship-related knowledge. We don't generally think about the social knowledge or just the basic mannerisms or the business, the faith-based business knowledge that you also need if you're running a business. For example, just treating people nicely. That's all part of knowledge. So how do you convince and raise awareness that people need to actually learn about these other things that are happening in our world? And then like you said, we're always being influenced Whereas, if it's at work, social media, the general media, we're always being influenced. So how do you convince someone to say, you know what, there's other parts which we actually do need to learn about? Yeah. So if you look at the, the quote-unquote golden age of Islam, which some would, people like Ahmed Kila, who's, who's an author, he would argue against this idea of a golden age, saying it because it, it gives the idea that Muslims were only successful in one particular period of time, one particular place in Baghdad. What about like the Ottomans and you know the, the Muslims in Spain and so on? They had a lot of successes. During that golden age in, in Baghdad, um, the, the rulers, and um, they would fund not just religious knowledge, but secular knowledge. And it was this combining together of the, the religious and secular knowledge that really allowed Muslims to prosper. And this is not just specific to like, you know, medieval Baghdad, but across Muslim societies. When Muslims have 
uh, tried to understand and have you know, gone out their way to understand worldly matters and other worldly matters, that's when they really flourished. Because if you only, if you only, understand, if you only want to understand Islam, you're not going to understand how to implement it in today's world because you're going to be lacking that. Mm. Um, and you'll also be maybe too otherworldly and therefore you're not going to technologically progress. Like if you only have, if you only have an understanding of Islam, you're, you're not going to understand what's needed in order to, to, to progress technologically. If you only have secular knowledge, then you're not going to have the prerequisite or the requisite tools foundationally, like Islamically, um, to know how to, um, how to, the framework and boundaries in which you should be operating in, you know. So Muslims historically have always thrived when they've brought these two together. Um, and that's, that's really, really important. And, you know, um, our world is constantly changing. And therefore, our understanding of our faith also needs to change in line with our changing world. That's not to say that the fundamental principles of our faith changes or that the faith changes, but how we interpret our faith and how we apply it today um, needs to be thought about. You know, you need to think about that. So for me, you can't actually be a, a good Muslim if you don't really understand the world that you live in. Because your understanding is going to be someone's understanding from 700 years ago where the context was completely different. So in order to be a person who is, who is contributing meaningfully to, the, meaningfully to the world and is doing the job of what a Muslim should be doing, it's, it's to understand, um, uh, understand the, the world that we live in and how to operate within it. And you can't do that without studying and, and knowledge and Studying and knowledge, by the way, doesn't mean you have to go to a mosque or go to Egypt, whatever, to study. There's so much knowledge that you can gain from people locally, teachers locally, from YouTube. You train the algorithm on YouTube correctly, watching the right videos, it'll like bombard you with, with other really good videos. So knowledge can come in different ways. But the main thing is to be on that, that journey of, of learning. I think it's important when you're getting faith-based knowledge or Islamic knowledge to make sure you do go to the right people. Um, but I think also you're right in the sense that when times change or as things evolve, you have to be you have to be aligned with that. For example, about 30, 35 years ago when internet first came about, a lot of the scholars there would say, no, you're not allowed to use it. But after a while, they realized it's actually a medium. So yes, you can do bad, but there's also good. And it's about how you use it. And it's the same with social media today. Um, and the good thing about social media is you can select the same way you said for the algorithm, you can choose who you follow. So if you want to follow the bad restaurants and not the bad restaurants, the unhealthy restaurants, etc., you're going to be more inclined to go to the restaurants. Whereas if you're going to follow religious scholars or just people of knowledge or not necessarily even religiously, secularly as well, then you're going to be more inclined and your thinking will change accordingly as well. Because then you're being influenced. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so this is the importance of um, influencing yourself. Like we all have to become influencers, and this is a, a concept that I'm really passionate about. Is that we are all influencers. So there is nothing that we can do, nothing that we can think, that isn't going to impact other people. So let's say, for like a, a example, like let's say someone's smoking. They're like, oh, you know, it's not harming anybody else. I'm, I'm smoking. It's like. Mm, 
you're probably going to get ill at some point. That's going to have an impact on your family. That's going to have an impact. Like we all pay taxes for the NHS. You know, maybe, you know, we have to, con we have to pay our taxes because, you know, you're smoking. I'm not talking about this. I, I'm not talking about a specific, you know, I'm not talking about smokers, in, like just smokers. I'm talking about generally the idea that if you do something, it will always have a, a repercussion or, or a consequence. So um, we have to recognize that we are all responsible and accountable. And this is another thing which is really important, you know, tra in traditional like Islamic thought and understanding and, and, and fiqh, um, it's not the sole um, responsibility of the government to build the economy and to build a, a great society. It's responsibility to all of us. All of us have uh, an important role in society to build a society and to help, right? We often complain, oh, the government's not doing this and my council's not doing this. It's like, okay, they have responsibility as well, but so do you, you know? So if we can see ourselves as being important and having a role to play in society, it will massively change things. But all of us, we, um, deprioritize ourselves and think that we've got no power and, and so on. It's like, how many individuals in history have changed the world? One person. There's, there's nothing necessarily um, that different from people who've gone on to change the world to you or to me. It's just they had their mindset that they wanted to do it. And okay, some of the circumstances favored them and so on. But it starts with an understanding that you can make a change and you can make a change in society. And once you have that internal recognition, you can do a lot in the world. How does a person get that internal recognition? So uh, I think it, it, it's, it, again, it starts with this idea of knowledge, yeah. this idea of knowledge. So you have to understand um, there's two dimensions. There's, there's understanding yourself, like trying to be authentic with yourself. You know, there's, there's a there's saying of, of the Prophet peace upon him, which um, is attributed to him, but we don't know if he actually said it, you know, which is um, he who knows himself knows his Lord. And there's this idea that there's this, once you know yourself and you know um, on one level what you're good at and what you're not good at and what you need to improve and how you get to where you want to go, there's a much greater alignment between you and God because you're therefore um, reflecting and living the word, the, the will of God, you know, on earth and you're aligned with, with, with that. Then there's... Um, your relationship with God and there's your relationship with society. There's the, the vertical and the horizontal. So you need knowledge of both of these. Knowledge of yourself, um, which is knowledge of the nafs. You know, how do you overcome the, the, the evil tendencies within ourselves? And that's, that's a science, like the purification of the heart and, and so on, which, which Muslims traditionally have studied, which we've largely lost today. Um, so understanding ourselves, the purification of the heart, which makes you a better person, and then understanding the society and how you can contribute to society. Where are, the, where are the problems and how can you as an individual, knowing your strengths and knowing what you want to focus on, improve society? So you might say, you know what, I'm really good at, um, I'm really, I have a, a lot of knowledge, say, of um, fitness uh, and, and, and food. So that's going to be my contribution to the world, is I'm going to make people physically stronger and make sure that they're eating the right food. That's just one small thing that you can do which have a massive impact. Likewise, other people might be like, you know, I, I, um, I've studied environmentalism. You know, I want to make sure that we're, yeah, we're helping the planet, you know. So 
those two things, that inward alignment and outward alignment with society is, is, how, is the first place to start? I think, I think a lot of it comes with just recognising, like you said, recognising your strengths. And I think what happens is it's the mindset where a lot of people generally focus on their weaknesses. I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. And I think that is a product of the environment where we're seeing so many other people better than us on social media that we forget that we're actually good at, for example, like you said, fitness. So if we just focus on that one thing, make it our niche, you create a much better impact. You can start locally and then build it globally. And with social media and then with, for example, agencies like yours where you can deliver that message even through brands or through strategy, however you plan it, then you can have that much bigger impact. What some of the things that you've implemented in your life or some of the habits you've implemented that helps you create a change? So I think it's first important to recognize that um, things happen at different points in your life. And it's important not to beat yourself up if where you're at at the moment is not where you want to be because things often happen organically. And sometimes there's a trigger, sometimes it's, it's a accumulation of things that you learn and experiences and wisdom that lead you to where you are today. So just to give you some examples, and this is, I'm not trying to in any way say that I'm better because of some of these things that I do, but like I try my best um, to, uh, uh, to, to fast to some extent every day. And that's not the Islamic fast, but for example, I will eat say between 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. And then I won't eat again until 11 a.m. And um, fasting, which is uh, fundamental in our faith, is like the biggest talk of the town at the moment in in like you know the, the science of food and and health you know people like david sinclair um, who's probably the leading expert in the world on on um aging he's he says that the number one thing you can do for your health is fasting you know so people just are constantly eating and snacking which what that does is that raises your insulin levels your blood glucose levels and it's important to have an understanding of the food that you're eating. So for example, things like um, protein and meat are less likely to raise your insulin levels. Um, whereas, you know, carbohydrates and things like that will, will really raise your insulin levels. So people think they're eating well by having like toast in the morning and, and things like that. It's like that's going to rise your uh, glucose levels and you're going to have a, a drop, you know. So people have all these mood swings and, and, and stuff like that. It's because we don't understand the effect our food is having on us, you know. Um, so, um, and then in terms of in terms of diet, um, you know, us Asians we love like rice and things like that. Honestly, you don't actually need that many carbs. You know, fruits are a type of carb, so you can get your sugars and, and carbs from from fruits, which is a better alternative to grains. So there's nothing wrong with having like roti and rice and things like that every now and again. But you want you don't want to be having that like regularly. It ties you out, it makes you sluggish and lethargic and, and so on. So food and, and, and fasting. Then I try to go to the gym as, as much as I can. The gym is really important for a couple of reasons. Number one is um, fitness and exercise helps with your confidence. You know, there's this relationship between what you look like and the confidence that you portray. You know, it has a psychological effect on you. Plus it helps with clarity, you know. I don't know, you know, like people watching this, but if you go to the gym, how often do you have 
a good idea that comes to you. Yeah, that's you know, true. like you become a lot more like you're just you're just working out, and it's like you have this great idea, you know, um, and that's because you're in a different environment, um, and plus you're in a you're in more for optimal state because your body is working and and you know and and, and so on. So there's the food, there's the exercise, um, and then there's also um, the um, uh, uh, just generally s seeking knowledge. And like I said, seeking knowledge is not in, in the not in the traditional way of like going somewhere or so on, but just being on that lifelong journey of of, of learning. Um, and and then finally, just um, all of that is irrelevant if you don't have good mental health, right? So you can have the best diet in the world. You go to the gym every day, but if you're not looking after your mental health, it's, it's, it's makes no difference. The, the number, the, the best thing you can do for your physical health is to have good mental health because your mental health will mean that you can do the things that you want to do, like eat well and exercise. If you're, if you're, not, if you're not feeling great and you're suffering from bad mental health, you're less likely to want to eat well. You're less likely to want to go to the gym. And then it becomes a, it becomes a cycle, you know. So, um, you know, look after your mental health um, slash spiritual health. In fact, without having good mental health, you probably won't be able to have good spiritual health. Because if you're, if you're not in a mentally good place, you're not going to want to pray. You're not going to want to fast. You're not going to want to be particularly good in society and so on. So mental health, spiritual health, physical health, um, all of it starts with, you know, that understanding that you can be better and you can you can work on yourself and it starts with incremental changes uh, and those incremental changes for me start with um, seeking uh, knowledge because the knowledge is the thing which will inspire you to go out and take that action with physical health it's a lot easier to see if you're struggling with it and you can tell sometimes you've just had a bad few meals or you're not going out for a walk regularly or whatever it is you're not going to the gym as regularly as before or you feel tired but with mental health you can't always tell when you're having a bad moment or bad day or you're slowly going down so how do you monitor your mental health and what's the secret yeah. of having a good level of mental health the reason why i'm, I'm laughing is I'm, I'm not an expert on any of these of things course, I but that. you know I'll, I'll chip in with my two cents um so your, your question was, how do you monitor your mental health and how do you uh, work on it? Is yeah, so what's the secret of having a good level of mental health? So or from your personal experience? Yeah. Okay, so, so part of it is, um, part of it is you, you benefit from your nature. That's a small, ele that's a small element. But the, the biggest thing is essentially um, the company that you keep i think that's a really important thing so company that you keep is not limited to the people that you're physically around it's also the people that you're listening to online so if you follow the wrong people on social media if you watch the wrong type of videos if you become addicted you know to to being online all the time you're much more likely i think to suffer from poor mental health because you're not being given uh, the right things that your mind, your body, and your soul needs. So the very first thing is um, do an audit of the way in which you're living. So look at the day that you're living. How much time do you spend on YouTube? How much time do you spend on Netflix? How much time are you spending um, eating? How much time are you spending sleeping? 
And then you start one by one working on those things. So I, for example, let's say I spend three hours a day on Netflix every night. Okay, I'm not gonna do three hours, I'm gonna do one hour. And, and that's, that's really important is learning to change things incrementally. So like a few years ago, um, I used to have two toasts in the morning. I was like, you know what, it's not good. Two toasts in the morning. It doesn't, it doesn't, might not sound like a bad thing, two toasts. Like, what's wrong with having two toasts? Yeah, it's better I mean, than having cereal. Um, well, well, it depends, it, what, type like of, it, it depends yeah. what type of cereal, it depends what type of toast. Toast, if you are going to have bread, you want to have sourdough bread because it's fermented for longer. It's what people used to eat historically and so on. Most cereals are full of sugar, um, although some cereals would be better than others. Um, so anyway, I, I cut down from two toasts to one toast, which was like a relatively small thing. When you, when you, when, when you want to make a change, you want to make sure that it doesn't really have an, a real impact on you because then you're going to stop doing it. If you feel like, I really don't want to do that. But going from two toasts to one toast was like, didn't even really feel it. It's like, it's, 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 it's a small change, but ultimately it ends up in a big change because you go from two toasts to one toast over the space of one year and there will be a, there will be an improvement in your health. I went from one toast to not having any toast, you know? Um, so, so the point I'm making is, you know, in this kind of um, silly example is that choose the thing that you want to start with and do something which is not too big for you to be like, I don't, I don't want to do that, it's too big for me. And then chip away at all these things in your life and it will end up becoming like a, is the right, the right term, like a waterfall effect, like things will just start falling into place. I don't want to like pretend that my life is great or anything, I've got so much to improve. I'm like, you know, terrible in, in so many different areas of my life. But I'm, I'm trying, you know, I'm trying with, with, with as best as I can. If you had a 21-year-old Omar da Costa sitting next to you, just coming out of university, what would you say to him? Um, I would say um, you don't need to start a business too early. Um, most businesses fail, um, you know, full stop, majority. They're more likely to fail when you're younger. So you want to make sure that um, if you are going to start a business, um, you want to make sure that you really know what you're doing in that industry, you have experience in it, and you have the right team in order to achieve it. Um, that's business. Um, number two is, I would say, uh, to really make the most of time. You know, I felt like I was 21 just the other day, you know, and I'm about to turn 32. Um, where's that time gone? You know, it just flies past. And it's only when you recognize and value the importance of time that you really start to make the most of things and you start to achieve a lot more. If you waste time, um, you will end up um, wasting your life. And as Imam Ghazali says, your time is your capital. You know, um, your time is the most important thing that you have because once it's over, it's over, you know. So importance of time is really important. Knowing how to spend your time, like that's an art, like knowing how do you spend your time. We have 24 hours in the day. How do you want to split that up? What things do you want to do? what things you want to achieve. Um, and then the third thing is, I would have liked a lot earlier to um, have a much greater understanding of how the world is impacting us, you know, psychologically, spiritually, and, and so on. Because the earlier you recognize that, the earlier you can create the systems in your life to, to challenge those things. So a lot of us spend like endless time on social media 
not recognizing the harms that it does. Like we just spend a lot of our teens and our early 20s and people even older than that, you know, spend a lot of time on social media. Imagine how productive you can be with your life if you limit your social media usage from five hours a day to one hour a day. And you were to use those four hours a day, you were to accumulate those four hours a day over 10 years, and you were to do something productive in those four hours. Imagine what you could achieve in the space of 10 years. So the, 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 that, that ties into the value of time. So I think with the topic of time, I think time block, time blocking is important and it helps you avoid distractions because there's also that thing of you can be doing something productive and then you get a message on your phone. It's like, okay, cool, let me reply quickly now. And then to regain that focus to the level you had while you were doing your productive work takes at least 60 plus seconds. And then, so time blocking itself is very important to keep them productive along with cutting down on the things like social media, which isn't necessarily productive for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would really encourage myself, everyone to have a plan each day. You know, you don't want to just let time pass. Yeah. You want to make sure that your morning, you have, you know what you're doing in your morning. You know exactly what you're doing in your afternoon. You know what you're working on in the afternoon. You know what you're doing in the evening. You know what your nighttime routine is. You know what your morning routine is. You don't have these systems in place in your life. Things are just gonna, um, you're just going to end up being extremely unproductive. And I'm not, I'm not, when I use the word productive, I'm not trying to say that we need to be constantly working all the time. Like productive in the, in the sense that you're doing something beneficial, meaningful, whether it's spending time with your children, whether it's spending time with your wife, spending, calling your, calling your parents, you know, calling your family, you know, um, working on yourself, you know, making sure that you're thinking about what you want to eat and when to exercise. Like we should be as methodical and planned as we can. Um, so, um, what you're talking about is really like focused or deep work, like which Nikhil Newport came up with that term, just the idea that whenever you're working on a task, you want to make sure that you're giving 100% and therefore you want to minimize distractions. So if you're at work and you're working and you want to get something important done, you put your phone in airplane mode or you turn it off, you know, you put it away because that's going to distract you. You know, when you're working, you don't want to be on WhatsApp. On your, you don't want WhatsApp on your desktop. Sometimes you kind of, you maybe need to if it's part of your work, but you want to avoid as many distractions as possible. A, because it, it can uh, divert you. And B, the quality of your work is going to be is not going to be as good because you're not going to be in that mind frame to get stuff done. The same applies when you're spending time with family and friends because you want to be present for that time. So if you're getting distracted by your messages or you just want to have that habit of just scrolling on Instagram, then obviously you're not being present and that affects relationships, affects, goes down the whole route of affecting mental health. And then you just end up in a deep rabbit hole. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that's, one of the most underestimated um, qualities of a, of a Muslim, and I know that not everyone listening to is a Muslim, but that's my you know, background, is the important of, importance of being present. You know, if you look at, for example, the, the Prophet, peace be upon him, um, whenever he would um, meet people, he would turn his whole body towards them. You know, he, it was also said that whenever it was with people, it was as if nobody else existed. You know, so that presence, um, which is an incredible quality to have, is the thing which allows other people to feel valued. Um, and when other people feel valued, it has a positive impact on their mental health. And they then have a positive impact on other people. So the, the idea of, of, of presence 
with people, being present with yourself and being present with God is, is really at the heart of being a, um, uh, a, a true human being. You know, and that's the nature of the age in which we live in today is destruction. If we were to characterize the time in which we live, it's a time of destruction, diversion. You look at the word destruction in the dictionary, actually means like a type of mental, um, it's, it's got this connotation of having, having like having, being mentally um, uh, um, in a bad place, right? So social media, our phones, technology, all of it is distracting. And, and if you look at like the, 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 the name of, of um, shaitan, um, you know, it's, it comes from the, the idea that it, 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 shaitan is the one that distances you. So by all the distractions that we're having today, they distance us from the life that we should be living and from, you know, worshipping God. So distraction is, is really a terrible thing. And um, we should never really try to be distracted. We should always be present in the thing that we're doing. I 100% agree. Um, before we finish, we'll have a quick fire round. Yeah. This will be a really interesting one, the first one, because of your diverse background. Favorite food? Oh, um, Punjabi Pakistani food. Any specific dish? I like uh, sag chops, which is, I know not everyone is, I know people have like sag chicken or sag yeah. meat, but sag chops is something like, for some reason I grew up on, like, I used to have that a lot. And then good old chicken curry is good as well. You, you said you grew up with a lot of um, I did, Jamaican I did. food. I did. So, I, I, so, uh, so my mum, my even though she wasn't um, not necessarily from a South Asian background, she learned <coughs> to cook curries and actually quite liked what she, what she cooked. And then my aunties and my grandmother from my dad's side, I used to have a lot of their curries. I used to have um, West Indian food from my mum's side and then curries from my dad's side. Um, but for me... I have an appreciation of, of a lot of different food, but you can't beat a good curry. Favourite holiday destination? Ooh. Okay, so this is going to sound weird. Okay, I'm not going to tell you a holiday destination. I'm going to tell you a favorite, destination. Favourite country? Okay, I'm not going to tell you favourite country. I'm going to tell you the favorite, the best place I've been. So in 2015, I spent three and a half months in the West African desert uh, in Mauritania, okay. which is in West Africa. And it was the best time of my life. Not the most enjoyable time of my life because I was living in a desert, it was really difficult. But in terms of like spiritually and mentally, what I gained from it was, it was really profound. Um, I feel like you've got so many questions off the yeah, back of that. I've got questions. <laughs> this is not a quick fire round. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, man. No, that, that's, that's it. Like, the, okay, my, my, the best place I've ever been was Mauritania. I'm going to ask a question though. What, what was it about the desert? Because my cousin's done that. He's gone for a few months, stayed with Bedouins and everything. So what's about the desert that's so spiritually profounding? So number one, going back to the idea, there's no distraction there. You're literally by, your, by yourself, like with, with all you can do is read or think or, you know, uh, and so on. So that provides you an immense sense of clarity. Like the, the amount of clarity I had in those three months was, was incredible. Second thing is there isn't really an opportunity to sin. Like you can always sin, but it's like, you know, the, 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 the stuff, the, all the temptations that we're around in, in, in these, you know, in our, in our cities, you don't have that, you know, so you're able to go on this really profound spiritual journey there. Like the clarity of my thought and the clarity of my dreams and stuff like that was really interesting. Um, and then also just um, 
uh, when you when you travel and you spend somewhere like in a desert for like over three months, um, you learn things about yourself that you never knew because you have time to reflect and to think and, and, and so on. So um, there's, there's multiple benefits. Also, you're surrounded by nature as well. Yeah. Because it's the same when we go, I've got family in Zambia in Africa. And when you're surrounded by nature, you feel completely different. You feel mindful, you feel fresh, clarity of thought. There's no internet in the jungle where we go. So it's, it, it does make a difference. Um, yeah. Back to the quick fire round. Favorite TV show? I don't watch TV, bro. I don't Favorite watch TV. YouTube? YouTube? Okay, I'll tell you some of the podcasts I like. Um, uh, so I like uh, uh, Patrick Let David's kind of podcasts and YouTube. Don't necessarily agree with everything, but I feel like it's very comprehensive, very diverse range of topics. You learn a lot and so on. I like Diary CEO, Stephen Bartlett's uh, podcast is excellent. Yeah. Um, and uh, those are two that come to mind. There's probably others. Um, but yeah, just interesting, interesting stuff related to faith and, and, and the world and stuff like that. Favorite book? Uh, don't have a favorite book, but ones that come to mind. Malcolm X's autobiography was, was really good. Um, I'm not going to do what a lot of Muslims do, which is my favorite book is the Quran, because that's like, that's like a given. Um, but that one, um, uh, Malcolm X, beyond that, what else do I like? Okay, you do ask me for one. I'm going to give you that one. And favorite day of the week? Ooh. I would say... I'll give you a clue, there's one at the back. <laughs> um, favorite day of the week? Uh, Saturday. Why? Sat Saturday is like... Sunday is like you got to go to work the next day. And so, so Saturday is like the day you can actually kind of switch off if you need to. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been a very interesting conversation. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Zaid.